Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. A couple of years ago, I asked a grad student to just bring me the Facebook privacy policy, print it out for me, bring it in a stack. That didn't seem like it was a big thing to ask, and I didn't receive it, I didn't receive it. I kept talking to him, and he finally came into my office and said, watch this. And we started looking for the privacy policy, Facebook's privacy policy, and you click here, you click here, you click here, you're back. You never see it in its entirety. It's a, it's a circular It's a circular thing, thing that never exposes the entire policy. Wow. How do they get away with that? I, well, it's not regulated. Social media companies in our country are not regulated. And again, this is because the growth has been so fast, the change has been so fast, that policy just hasn't been able to keep up. And I think another factor is we have come to use agree as next. A few years ago, my husband and I completed a real estate transaction online. First time I'd ever done that online. And we kept having to tell ourselves we've got to stop and read because our propensity was just to hit next, 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 check, Absolutely. next. Yeah. yeah. So we've become this click wrap society that just next is okay. We, we know to use this medium, we've got to click agree. Cookie policy, agree. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm joined as always today by my co-host and lovely friend, Fletcher <laughs> Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. I'm just so glad we're friends, especially yeah. in this day and age of all the <laughs> political hype. Hey there, Kelly, and hello, listeners. One thing is for sure, Kelly, the role of social media as an influencer in our discourse, political and otherwise, cannot be understated these days. No, really can't. And I've taken a little bit of a break this week from social media. And of well, course, <laughs> yeah, we, we, a you mental know, health break. Well, you know, Charles, my husband, you know, he kind of boycotted Facebook for most of the year this year. And then he hopped back on this week because I posted some pictures of our kids from a photo shoot. So he's on like today, but he'll probably boycott again tomorrow. <laughs> so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Charles boycotts, we know it's serious. Oh, right? yeah, that's right. that's right. So, of course, Misinterpreted is not a political podcast, right, right. but we often talk about myth versus reality here. Yeah. Public relations demystified or just business demystified. Today, social media demystified. And one of the biggest ongoing areas of confusion in our society is just how much social media has infiltrated our daily lives. Yeah. And it's a little scary, I think. It can be downright sobering, I think. And our business, Kelly, we're kind of forced to be on social media ourselves, you know, yes. our staff, our team. You know, we have to be in the places where the audiences are in order to understand the online communities and the technical capabilities for audience reach because, you know, we're having to advise our clients right. on that. So we yes. have to know the landscape. We have to know the ins and outs right. if we're going to recommend it as a tactic. And right. I enjoy, for the most part, being on social media for the most part. Right, Not, right. Sometimes I, I just would like to go away from it for six months or so. But it's just such a great way to stay in touch with everybody, mm. with your friends and family, and also... I've learned so much from social media, but we're seeing and reading more and more about disturbing aspects of how social media operate from a back office perspective. Yeah. And we don't have any idea what's really going on behind the, the big curtain right. of Oz. 
with all this digital coding and algorithms yeah. that they talk about, but we don't really know what they are, or what they do. Right. And I think that this year there's been more dialogue about that. I mean, speaking for myself, I mean, I'm a past journalism and public relations major from the University of Tennessee, but I graduated 25 years ago. This is well predates social media and so much online, you know, digital communication really wasn't much of not the, even email. It wasn't. I mean, we were just getting email yes. at the University of Tennessee when I graduated. I mean, I think the final semester that I was at UT. But one thing for sure at, at UT when I was there, and I know that this is carried forward, is that First Amendment freedoms, access to information, free flow of information, exchange of ideas has always not just been fundamental, it's been really a non-negotiable part of democracy. But thanks to Twitter, especially, and also other social media like Facebook, we are seeing censorship take hold. And some will argue that it, it's good censorship. But in my view, I think that the algorithms and you know just some of the plain old human interferences and biases are taking hold in a way that is sometimes undermining an informed public and kind of undermining a consent of the governed in some ways. So that may be a subject for a podcast on another day, but it's just, you know, those are just some of the observations and some of the topic points that are in dialogue, I think, in our, our world right now. Well, it's surprising to me what people will believe without fact checking or going to look at any of the real that's right um, back the sources of the information and I think that's where the problem comes in on social media with the misinformation but now what we have is somebody deciding what is right and what is wrong what is good information and what is bad information and and how does that play into what we see right. on social media and as we've pointed out numerous times in full transparency your political views are more on the conservative side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit more on the left. That's why we make a great team because I'm always right and you're always wrong. <laughs> Seriously, though, we do have great exchange of ideas yeah. from both vantage points. And that's one thing I love about our friendship Yeah, is that we have these discussions and then sure. we just go have a glass of wine after when we're not. <laughs> so if only all the world would follow our yeah, example. I know. We're <laughs> such role models. That's right. And listeners, you're always welcome to chime in as well using the hashtag misinterpreted, the capital PR. And to that point, we're immensely fortunate today to have an expert in social media ethics and an internationally noted academic authority in public relations research, Dr. Candace White, who is going to discuss her most recently published paper in Public Relations Review. Mary Beth, you know Dr. White personally, so why don't you give us the introduction? Sure thing. And I'm so excited about having Candace join us. Dr. Candace White is Professor of Public Relations in the School of Advertising and Public Relations. Her research interests include the role of global corporations as non-state actors in public diplomacy. Very, I think we're already going to have to have her back, Kelly, for yeah. <laughs> just on that topic alone. Also, how corporate social responsibility and CSR communication affect the image and national reputation of the country with which the corporation is associated. Another very fascinating mm -hmm. area of study. She is a faculty fellow at the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy in the area of global security. And she is also an Arthur W. Page Legacy Scholar. Of course, the Arthur Page Society, very prestigious group. 
She serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Public Relations Research and the International Journal of Strategic Communication. She was a Fulbright Senior Specialist at the University of Salzburg, Austria, 2010, and at the University of Siena, Italy in 2020. With support from the University of Tennessee, she has lectured in Denmark, Scotland, Wales, Austria, Croatia, and Italy, and she holds a PhD from the University of Georgia. I mean, what an amazing expert to have on our on our podcast today. I'm such an underachiever after that bio. Thank you for all you've contributed to our profession. And I'm so proud to have you here on the podcast and to get to spend time with you personally. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And I have to say that one of the reasons I came to the University of Tennessee is when I interviewed, one of the groups of people they exposed me to were students. And I was so impressed with the students that interviewed me during that time. And it was Travis Parman and Mary Beth West, (laughs) (laughs) who was Mary Beth Chun at that time. Right. But I'm very happy to be here. Wow, I, did, I didn't know that. Yes, we, we go back a ways. <laughs> well, Candace, I'd like to start the conversation off with you telling our listeners a bit more about what some of your principal research interests have been over the years and how your research in social media and digital communication has evolved over time. Yeah, I'd love to. My dissertation at the University of Georgia was about the internet, about communication through the internet. My dissertation, which was published in 1995, didn't even mention the World Wide Web because it didn't exist. So I've just, through the years, of course, social media, as you said in your introduction, has become such a big part of public relations that it was just always in my research. The effect, communication effects, how public relations people use communication, and it's very big. And from the beginning, I was very positive. It was exciting. It was innovative. And then during the past few years, as I've read more and more about the business model of social media companies and how they are collecting information, I read a book, Surveillance Capitalism, which really made me stop and think about it. Simultaneously, and of course, all is connected, I was looking at public diplomacy and the role of corporations and cybersecurity and the role that communication played in elections and things such as Brexit. And so all this together just made me want to dig a little deeper into the uh, business models and artificial intelligence. AI is just something we can't ignore today. Right. Absolutely. And before we delve more into the paper, I do want to touch on just the area of ethics in and of itself. We know that your deep interest and commitment to strong communications ethics has always been something of importance to your work. And I've heard you speak on this in the past as well. It's just front and center to what you've taught in the classroom as well. I would love to get your impression. What do you think the state of PR ethics is today, just writ large? Yeah. You have to think, what is PR? (laughs) I mean, I think you have to start there. Right. And unfortunately, there are just a lot of people who call themselves public relations professionals who aren't professionals in our sense. And I think the positive thing is through education and professional societies that there is an increased professionalization in the field. Mm -hmm. But I think if you say, what's the overall state, you're including so many bad apples that it's hard to say. Well, I think that one of the things that I've seen in social media, a lot more dialogue about 
is the nomenclature even correct to call it a profession versus an industry? Exactly. And I'm seeing a lot more back and forth about, eh, I wouldn't call it a profession. We don't really qualify as that regarding the specific definitions, say, as the legal profession or the accounting profession because of the credentialing and the regulation piece of those, which we don't have a regulatory aspect. But to that point, too, I would love to get your impressions in the classroom setting. Is it becoming more or less difficult to teach ethics in the classroom in terms of how students perceive ethics importance in public relations? Right. Now, honestly, in 25 years, I haven't seen a big difference in the way students perceive it. It's obviously becoming more complex. There are so many aspects to the fact that the term free speech has become politicized. You know, those are kind of Mm -hmm. issues that Mm -hmm. I wasn't addressing a few years ago. But the students always seem interested in ethics. And particularly, I've had so many good discussions about what is truth and and transparency as an aspect of truthfulness. We at the University of Tennessee include ethics in every public relations class. Good. We have a new class that we're just introducing ethical and legal considerations, issues in public relations. But the students are very receptive to the study of ethics. I tend through the years to put more emphasis on corporate social responsibility. And that's something also that students are very interested in. Looking at CSR is to a corporation, what ethics is to a person and how organizations, corporations are spending profits and responding to stakeholders, but generally well-received. And again, you know, I'm in an elite situation with students who are studying this in a college curriculum, which goes back to professionalism. So I do think that I might not have a big worldview about how this is. Well, in terms of how ethics was treated 20 years ago versus now, I guess clearly just the social media and digital communications implications have posed the largest change, I would anticipate, regarding the construct of how ethics has to be treated or its application within our sphere of relevance. Exactly. And back to truth and transparency. What is truth? If you read something on social media, I know, Kelly, you said you've learned a lot from social media. But again, how do you know what you've learned is true? And where did that information come from? And traditionally, media had gatekeepers. So professional journalists were corroborating the accuracy of the information they were presenting. They were presenting two sides. And now algorithms are the gatekeepers. Algorithms decide what you see. So you two are friends. I'm sure you're friends on Facebook as well. But if you looked at your news feed every day, it would be so different. You might be surprised that you had zero posts in common. And we can talk more about that when we talk about the article. But it's not someone deciding what we see anymore. It's an algorithm deciding what we see. That would be an interesting experiment is to just... Like, yeah, do a compare contrast. We could switch off for a day and I yeah. could be you and you could be me right. and we would see what we get served up. Right, exactly. One thing that you mentioned that is so interesting, Candace, is that in newsrooms, because there has been such breakdown of newsrooms being able to be a properly funded to have editors internally checking reporters and reporters being able to collaborate and have supervision of the, you know, the pushback of, hey, did you get a second source? 
on that. There's not that going on as much anymore. It's just, you know, newsrooms are the news construct of what we grew up with and understood to be good journalism has been really cut off at the knees. I agree. It's gone. Not only are the size of newsrooms shrinking, but we're in a 24-hour news cycle. And so a lot of times you're just forced to report before you have all the facts, because if you don't, somebody else will. And we also have to remind ourselves that news organizations are private sector corporations that exist in this country to make a profit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the competitiveness there, I think, is a fact. And they're competing with citizen journalism as well. Absolutely. Who who gets it out there first. Mm -hmm. So bloggers, influencers. Oh, absolutely. We thought we could just go down a whole rabbit hole. But we'll stick to the point at hand here. Sometimes I have a hard time doing that. But (laughs) that is the paper that you and Brandon Boatwright, who was a professor at Clemson, authored. It's truly fascinating. And it's entitled Social Media Ethics in the Data Economy, Issues of Social Responsibility for Using Facebook for Public Relations, which is we just live in that whole universe right now of using Facebook for public relations and marketing. And you hit on huge issues, not only specific to Facebook that we've seen discussed and play out here these recent years in the news, but also on these broader themes of ethical considerations like non-disclosure, conflict of interest, and purposeful intent to mislead. That's really scary. It's very scary. And not only for commercial interests, but potentially other interests that can be leveraged as well. It's a lot to unpack, but can you give us an overview of the paper and what the key takeaways are? Sure. Let me just clarify something, because the paper focused on Facebook. I am not saying that Facebook purposefully intends to mislead through the information a user sees on Facebook. But what we did is a very thorough analysis of the privacy policy, which I think we just drew the conclusion, and any reasonable person would, that it absolutely is intended to mislead. And this is just not our opinion. In uh, July 2019, the FTC fined Facebook an unprecedented $5 billion fine, largest fine ever for the FTC, for misleading users about how it uses your personal information. Just check the box. You have to check the box. I think I heard something about the fine, but I don't think that I ever connected the dots about really the misleading aspect of them having talked out of one side of their mouth, assuring the public, oh, oh, they're there all is well. Sure. And then for the government to have substantiated that they're that the, the privacy ex- policy. Yes. Is and, so and, and, and obviously in a some form of like a court of law, they were able to move forward with a fine at that level. Right. Right. And you think five billion dollars is a lot of money, but if your profits were seventy billion in one clip. year, yeah. exactly. It's a five dollar bill compared to your hundred dollar bill. What Facebook has done is they've created legal definitions. So they define personal information one way, knowing that you're probably going to consider personal information a different way. You're going to interpret a different way. And in the paper, we call this strategic ambiguity. You have to go back and dig a little deeper into what constitutes an algorithm. So, of course, big data, we've all heard about big data. Lots and lots and lots of small points of of personal data, person's data, and we can talk more about that, can be aggregated to form algorithms, formulas that tell you a lot about the psychological profile of the person. 
So what Facebook defines as personal information are these tiny little small points like your name, your posts that say congratulations, happy birthday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't sell that because it's useless. It's worthless. It doesn't, anybody can get that. It's no big deal. But what they do is sell a psychological profile that is derived from this, what they call personal information. And that is incredible how specific that can be. For example, an algorithm can tell just by a person's Facebook use if that person has a bipolar disorder. And not only that, it can tell when you're in a manic phase of that bipolar disorder. And that information can be sold and used to put an ad in front of your face to for a trip to Las Vegas while you're in your manic stage. Or a that. shopping spree. For a shopping spree. Exactly. Well, that's so interesting because if you looked at my feed, it would look like a self-help bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, if any employer ever bought the information to my feed, they would be like, this woman just does not, she doesn't have it together. She's too much into self-help and she needs to lose weight and <laughs> all these other things. But Kelly, the, the sad thing is your feed is just scratches the surface of what could be known about you. Wow. Go, go deeper seeing, there. Tell yes. us more. Yeah. Well, for example, let me just start just to kind of preface this by saying we think about Facebook ads and Facebook purposefully uses the word advertising to call these messages because that's a connotation that, you know, it has, we all know it's there, so what, we're exposed to them every day, no big deal. But really what the term means is any entity to which they sell data which can be a foreign government, it can be an employment agency, it can be all kinds of third-party brokers that resell your data, and you've agreed to all this. And so this data can be sold in such a way that, for example, an employer can tell your sexual orientation, your political leanings, whether you have a propensity for addiction, all kinds of things that the employer can't legally ask you, but they could use that to screen you for employment. And I really think that we're going to see a generation of chronically underemployed people who never understand why they can't finally you know, make the final cut or land the job that they're after because this data becomes available. So it begs the question, why should we allow this to happen? I mean, why do we just go ahead and check the box and give up all of our personal information and give up total control over it? Because we don't know any better. And I will say, too, that the business model of Facebook has changed a lot in the last five years. So the social media platforms that we thought we public relations professionals or just individual private citizens were using have changed so much and we just simply don't know. And another reason, Kelly, is that it's so easy to agree to a privacy policy. A couple of years ago, I asked a grad student to just bring me the Facebook privacy policy, print it out for me, bring it in a stack. That didn't seem like it was a big thing to ask, and I didn't receive it. I didn't receive it. I kept talking to him, and he finally came into my office and said, watch this. And we started looking for the privacy policy, Facebook's privacy policy, and you click here, you click here, you click here, you're back. 
you never see it in its entirety. It's a, it's a circular. It's a circular thing, thing that never exposes the entire policy. Wow. How do they get away with that? I, well, it's not regulated. Social media companies in our country are not regulated. And again, this is because the growth has been so fast, the change has been so fast, that policy just hasn't been able to keep up. And I think another factor is we have come to use agree as next. A few years ago, my husband and I completed a real estate transaction online. First time I'd ever done that online. And we kept having to tell ourselves we've got to stop and read because our propensity was just to hit next, 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 check, Absolutely. next. Yeah. yeah. So we've become this click wrap society that just next is okay. We, we know to use this medium, we've got to click agree. Cookie policy, agree. Right. And that's the strategic ambiguity that you're talking about. And I think that there's just sort of this willful ignorance that we as consumers engage in. And it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And that's okay with us. We're giving license to that. And that willful ignorance is going to cost us down the road. It's already costing us. Right. But that's the part that we don't know. And I think that it may be really more incumbent upon the journalism profession, which I will go ahead and call that a profession, that uncovering this and being much more aggressive in exposing it, investigating it, and informing the public about this underbelly of what's going on relative to the management of data and the really just the non-disclosures. And of course, we talk about the ethics you know, in public relations, most public relations codes in different organizations and different societies, whether it's the U.S.-based society or others internationally, disclosure of information is a big ethics tenet. And transparency. Yes, yes. Spe- yes. Speak to that. I mean, what are your observations well, on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all make an assumption that when somebody tells us the truth, it's the whole truth and that all aspects of it are transparent. And I think, you know, back to your earlier point about what can we do? Is this the role of journalism? I think everybody just needs critical media literacy. And that includes literacy about what news organizations are and how they make their money and what drives their revenues. I mean, we can no longer just assume that they're neutral, that they're also not fair and unbiased. And information comes from so many different sources that it's increasingly hard to evaluate all the sources. Exactly. And I think that disclosure of information about sponsorship Mm -hmm. and about what's motivating a news source or an information source to report in one way versus another way is just so critical. It's always been critical, but never more so than now. And, And the extent to which any outlet would try to hide that, Mm -hmm. that's cause for concern to me. I'm really interested in a lot of this because I see so many parallels. And, you know, I will just kind of mention about PRSA. You know, they have a new member disclosure policy where if you want to get on their My PRSA platform for, it's a member-only platform for just getting the membership directory or being able to interact with other members online, you have to sign now this very long disclaimer and legal waiver. It very much reminds me of what you're describing with Facebook. 
in that members are now having to agree that any content they upload, PRSA has unfettered access to, to be, yeah, rights to it, to be able to sell it without compensation or without even sharing credit or being able to give attribution to the original author of it. There is some very disturbing aspects of this PRSA disclaimer that members are basically being forced to sign off on if they even want to have access to the member directory online. Right. Which it's very much the same mentality of the thing is so long and so arduous to even read. It's like PRSA knows members will just click. I agree without really reading it. And when I started reading it, I was, in fact, I had an attorney look at it and he said, this thing is not even compliant with your code of ethics. It is not even compliant with PRSA bylaws. And we are actually breaking news. We are sending a memorandum from my attorney to PRSA in the coming week to notify them of these discrepancies. I mean, it's very disturbing, but it's the same mentality. Mm -hmm. It's a sense from the company or the organization of no one's going to read this. So we know what we want out of the deal. So we'll just have them sign off on it. And then we have the keys to the kingdom. Well, I think it's because we inherently trust maybe more than we should. We do. Uh, you know, we th- and we're told to trust. We're told to trust. We believe in the good of our industry's trade organization. And we believe that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have ethics and really care about us. But do they really? Yeah. And that was kind of the thrust of my paper is that when we've thought about social media ethics in the past, we thought about the public relations professional, the organization is what I'm writing on social media, true, transparent, in the public interest. And that's been the only thing we've considered. And Mary Beth, just like you were talking about the PRSA agreement, what we haven't done as public relations professionals is looked at the company itself. And I will just say, I said in the paper and I'll say here, that the corporate social responsibility of Facebook is dismal. They are not acting in the public interest. I know we've all heard that on social media, you're not the customer, you're the product, you're what's being sold. Yes. And I think as public relations professionals, we just need to look deeper into this business model and how our own customers are being treated. And there's also implications for how we're using social media. When we look at the business end of it, if you look at your Facebook page for the organization, the client you're representing, that's what you see. But what do users see? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that we can't see. And so what we do know is that algorithms are determining that. So you may be thinking you're reaching the people you need to be reaching, but you're not because every single person has more friends who are creating more content than any other person can see in a day. And so Facebook algorithms determine what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And you also run the risk of your client or your organization, your message being surrounded by messages that you wouldn't want to be surrounded with, that you would not choose. Well, it bothers me when I think about how this trickles down to brands and how we advise brands, because all of our clients are using social media advertising as a tactic to influence some sort of behavior. You have to. You, you have you, to use paid in order to be yeah. in order to be competitive. Right. So we do have one client in Atlanta who boycotted Facebook ads. And, you know, we've really struggled with how do we replace those ad dollars with 
another tactic that's as effective for the low cost. And there's just really not anything out there. So it's almost like you have to be there whether you want to or not. Exactly. No, I totally understand that. You know, it's a social monopoly, as we said earlier. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. I think what we perhaps need to look at is policy and regulation. Facebook, as you know, bought Instagram, but it also on 74 other companies. When you agree to these policies, you're often agreeing that For example, the company can use your microphone on your phone, and we've probably all experienced those moments where how did they know, but I was talking about this to somebody. But I think policy, right now, of course, you know, in Europe, there is far more policy than in the United States, but there is no policy about the purpose for which algorithms can be sold. And so you just have to remember that $70 billion of Facebook revenue comes from selling algorithms. That's what they sell. And they're not just selling them to advertisers and your clients. They're selling to anybody that'll buy them. So do you think that they're selling to foreign governments? Oh, yeah. They admit it. I mean, there's no question about that. And to other entities that aren't advertisers. That's why that word advertisers is just so misleading innocuous yeah misleading and and then the question becomes to which foreign governments (laughs) well i just wonder why they don't have to disclose who they sell because there is no regulation regulation. (laughs) which yeah that brings us to the next question just to shift for a moment as to the implications tied to these super dominant social media platforms and i mean let's face it at this point facebook and twitter in particular command almost what I would call public utility status, really. I mean, in terms of how much certain large segments of the public relies on them and is utterly dependent on them as platforms for news and basic information exchange. It's not just posting pictures of your kids and keeping up with your high school friends. This is such a huge swath of the public. This is their news source. Absolutely. So, right. Mm -hmm. So, Candace, from your vantage point, I mean, is the evidence mounting that these companies have very little true ethical accountability test that they must pass with the public? And do you feel like that they're on the route right now for regulation? Well, only if we wake up (laughs) and demand this. Policy usually follows public interest and demands. I think there is a rising tide in that direction. But you also just have to remember Facebook's global reach. And so political events in countries around the world have been affected. And you're exactly right that I've read um, different reports, but as high as 70% of people get all their news on Facebook. Well, their news is what the algorithm is determining it is. So Facebook's interest is that you stay on Facebook for as long as possible, for as many hours in a day as as they can possibly keep you there. And the way they can do this is by alleviating any kind of cognitive dissonance you have, by making it a place where you feel good, your happy place, a good place. Well, this happens when you see messages you agree with. And so everything you like and share shows your preference, and you're going to get more and more messages that you like and agree with. This is how Facebook advertising in the 
legitimate sense works as well. When you buy that inexpensive Facebook ad, it's going to be put in front of people who will probably agree with it, who will probably be susceptible to that. And if it is for a client, a legitimate client, that's fine. But unfortunately, Facebook doesn't look into whether it's a legitimate client or not. Right. And doesn't this just promote digital addiction? Because I hear so many parents talking about their kids being just addicted to not being able to break away from their social media channels at all. It's their entire identity. And now when you talk about the cognitive dissonance, so they're manipulating these kids by giving them more and more of what makes them feel good, just like a drug would. It's the catnip. The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, lists social media now as a legitimate addiction for which you can get treatment. Wow. So I just wonder when we talk about regulation and bringing this to light more and more, because Mary Beth, like you said, the $5 billion fine, that was kind of just a little blip on the screen. It wasn't that big of a news story. No, it didn't make breaking news. Yeah, it wasn't. And so do you pitch your paper to journalists so that maybe if somebody takes on the cause and digs deeper and takes this on as a way to impact change in this industry? Because I'm ready to be your PR firm, yeah, quite frankly. Yeah, we're ready to pitch your take, paper. Yes. Take me yeah. on. Right, absolutely. <laughs> I'll click agree. <laughs> You know, generally, with academic research, we don't. It is just objective facts. Let's improve the science. Let's, you know, improve understanding. Again, this, for me, this was looking at social media ethics and then finding this big gaping hole that I felt like needed to be addressed. But I do think there are some groups, and yes, I'll sign as your client. I do think, again, goes back to critical media literacy. I think there is an acute need for people to understand how algorithms are being used. And this is relatively new, and policy always lags behind. Right. But I absolutely believe that we need public policy to regulate this in this country. I mean, if we just took the GDPR and just copied it, the General Data Protection Regulation of Europe, and copied it, it would be a step forward. Wow. And we're seeing more and more hearings. We're seeing these Facebook executives more and more often in Washington. Yeah. And it cracks me up because they're trying to explain what they do to 75-year-old white men. (laughs) And it's like, can we just get some people in there who might actually have a clue about what they're talking about? Seriously, they don't know what questions to ask. They don't even know what questions to ask. And I'll just go ahead and say, in terms of social media outlets, power of the on-off microphone switch, the power of censorship has been a big issue in recent months. And just speaking to that very issue of congressional appearances, you know, we saw Twitter's CEO, Jack Dorsey, appear before Congress, I guess, via Zoom in recent weeks. And there was one exchange, and I tweeted about it myself, of course, how apropos, but there was an exchange that occurred during that web call that he had in which I think there was one member of Congress who asked him, I think it was Cory Gardner, soon to be former Senator Cory Gardner, I think he got voted out of office the other day, asked Jack Dorsey of Twitter about this information that gets placed on Twitter by users who deny, for example, the Holocaust and deny the murder of six million people of the Jewish faith. And Dorsey replied, and I watched this clip over and over so I could be sure I could understand what Jack Dorsey was saying myself. I mean, really not just taking somebody else's word for it, 
But Jack Dorsey was saying anyone who would deny that the Holocaust happens, that's just misleading information. It's not misinformation. It's not disinformation, according to their policy. <laughs> their legal and definition. That's right. not a policy. Right, right. It's a, and he also said that's not a violation of Twitter's, quote, civic integrity rule. Okay, so... <laughs> You know, there are many other pieces of information with far less factual basis of being false that are being censored right now by Twitter every minute of every day at this point. So it's just that's just an example to me of this selective cherry picking of what we're going to put a disclaimer on as either misinformation or false information. That was just and to me, that was that was just very offensive that Jack Dorsey would just come right out on the record and say a Holocaust denier, that's not misinformation. And that's just me stating an opinion, but I mean, come on. Yeah. But, but, but it goes to this, this key issue. The power of these companies by many people's standard is just kind of getting out of control. And Candace, as your paper noted, this is a direct quote from your paper. Facebook is not only a monopoly in the corporate sense, but also in the social sense. So, it does go to that question of, are they going to get broken up as monopolies? Let's hope. I think what you just said about Jack Dorsey was just another example of him falling back to legalese, falling back to Splitting his policies, of yeah. and these strategic, ambiguous definitions, legal definitions. I'm a big believer in free speech. I mean, I'm sure I believe anybody should be able to say what they want to say. But free speech also implies that you're going to hear a variety of ideas. Exactly. And that's part of our political process. And so what these social media algorithms do is limit the flow of information. So you've got a very narrow, narrow, narrow view of the world. And another danger is you start to believe that's news. Even just calling it news feed, that was strategic. And you believe this. You have no reason not to. You also believe that your friends are seeing the very same message. And we talked a little bit about examples of how people have become polarized by using this. For example, if you liked that the Holocaust never happened, you're going to start seeing lots and lots of Uh. messages that agree with that. And reinforce and reinforce that. Exactly. And so while an ad which again, ad, remember the term means anybody that bought the algorithm is labeled as sponsored content. The first time you see it, if you share it, the sponsored content label goes away and it just looks like a fact. So I didn't know that it went away after you share. The problem is we just have lost the ability or the capability to discern truth from lies from mistruths. And social media exacerbates that. And again, I'll just say that part of this is big data and algorithms and artificial intelligence. The science behind this has seen such rapid growth that the consequences always lag behind. The consequences to the public interest follow. It takes a while for those to become Yeah. And there have to be consequences for ethics breaches, I think. And that's a huge issue that's going on in the public relations industry dialogue right now is should codes be enforced or should there be some form of if you're going to hold the APR credential, for example, should that have some measure of accountability tied to it regarding compliance with ethics codes? Do you feel, Candace, that 
public relations ethics codes at this point are starting to become antiquated or not keeping pace with current reality of some of these digital implications of how ethics are really being breached every nanosecond. Yeah. And again, I think if you just go back to the basics of truthfulness and transparency, that that just covers a lot of ground. But you're exactly right that there are just such an alarmingly increasing number of media outlets and things to think about when we think about public relations ethics. But I think the basic PRSA code of ethics is not antiquated. Mm -hmm. I think you can't have a code of ethics that covers every aspect Mm -hmm. of public relations practice. But if you're ethical in the things you do, that, in a sense, covers it. Yeah, I have long said that the PRSA Code of Ethics is fundamentally a very strong code. It's got excellent bones to it, but a code is just a code if you're not going to apply the code and comply with the code. So that's, I think, really where it's very important that we separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of making sure we're making all aspects of it come together right. in the right way. Yeah, and I personally think that parents need to be more educated so we can teach our kids at an early age exactly what's going on so so they know because they don't. Absolutely. And, you know, even Facebook policy says you can't have an account until you're at least 13, but then parents will start accounts for their babies. Or they just so, can put in a fake birthday. It's yeah, not hard to yeah. start an account if you're not really 13, but... Well, Candace, on a closing note, what's on the horizon for you in the year ahead? And do you have some other research projects underway? What I'm looking at right now, yes, I always have other other research projects under the way. This is one area of my research, but I also do some things in public diplomacy. But what I am really have been interested in is cyber diplomacy and, again, how messages that we consider state-centered diplomatic messages also are affected by artificial intelligence and algorithms. And just the whole use of algorithms is fascinating, even from an objective point of view, not label them good or bad, but looking at their increasing use for a number of things that affect business and media. So those are two things I'm working on right now. Well, I think we should have you back as a regular guest on our podcast exactly. because I we have yes. to come back. I we want need... to take some of your classes now too. Like, <laughs> absolutely, we need the Candace White segment of the Misinterpreted yes. podcast with the weekly brief on you know what's happening on all of these points because it's an ever changing landscape and there's something new and quite frankly horrifying happening every day. That's the problem. Yep, it's just so rapidly changing and the consequences, as I said, fall behind. Well, thank you for joining us today and we look forward to having you again soon. Thank you. I'll come back. That's wonderful. Listeners, we will respond to your questions and comments as always, so please do post them using the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mary Beth West and Kelly at KD Fletcher. And I'm going to go follow Candace on social media right now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Special thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Knoxville-based HumblePod at HumblePod.com. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com 
and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 